Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Russia celebrates the victory over Nazi Germany with a huge parade and more sabre rattling about the war in Ukraine. We saw how the military infrastructure was being developed, how hundreds of foreign advisors began to work. Russia has preemptively repulsed an aggression. It was a forced, timely and the only correct decision. Also tonight, all change in Stormont. Well, sort of. There's still the usual stalemate after Sinn Féin became the biggest party. We break down what happens next. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. May 9th is a hugely symbolic day for Russia. They celebrate the victory over Nazi Germany and remember the more than 27 million Soviets who died in that war. It also gives the Kremlin the opportunity to put on a huge military parade. And this year was no exception with thousands of troops and tanks marching across Red Square. Vladimir Putin used the occasion to rally the country and in his speech he gave his usual excuses for why he invaded Ukraine, blaming NATO and the United States for what was happening. We saw how the military infrastructure was being developed, how hundreds of foreign advisors began to work. There were regular deliveries of the most modern weapons from NATO countries. The danger grew every day. Russia has preemptively repulsed an aggression. It was a forced, timely and the only correct decision. If Russia had wanted to celebrate a victory in Ukraine by today, they were disappointed. In the east of the country, the violence continues with Russia pummeling towns in the Donbass region of the country. Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, says Ukraine will have two victory days after this war. There are no shackles that can bind our free spirit. There is no occupier who can take root in our free land. There is no invader who can rule over our free people. Sooner or later, we will win. Meanwhile, Russia's ambassador to Poland was splashed with red paint while attending a ceremony in Warsaw to remember Victory Day. Sergei Andreev was laying flowers at a memorial when he was struck by protesters opposed to the war in Ukraine. Well, for more on this, I'm joined by Aoife Moore, political correspondent at the Irish Examiner, Fianna Fáil TD Jim O'Callaghan, Sinn Féin TD Matt Carthy and Donnacho back on Professor of Politics at the School of Law and Government at DCU. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, to turn first to you, um, Donnacho, it's an annual event, this military parade in Moscow's Red Square and celebrations taking place elsewhere around Russia marking victory against Nazi Germany in World War II. Um, this year was teed up up to be more significant maybe than others, but no victory to declare there and a defence from Vladimir Putin of the motherland. 
Yeah, it was a very interesting speech. I mean, there's a lot of men in Russia who are sleeping more soundly in their beds tonight because there was an expectation or a fear that it might be the occasion for a mass mobilization, a formal declaration of war, uh, and that would have required all men to stay in Russia. They wouldn't have been allowed to leave. That didn't happen. Uh, it was a relatively short and downbeat speech, 11 minutes long. Uh, no mention of Ukraine by name in, in the speech. Uh, the focus was completely on Donbass and the protection of people in Donbass. And then the kind of rehashing of historical grievances, the notion that, you know, Russia is under some kind of existential threat from the West. And, and really making parallels between, you know, Western expansionism today uh, and, and Nazism. Why do you think no mention of Ukraine by name and indeed not declaring this a war, uh, maintaining that it's a special operation in the country? Well, I mean, Vladimir Putin doesn't recognize that there's a separate Ukrainian nation. Uh, he doesn't recognize that Ukraine has a right to exist. Um, so in many ways, he was projecting Russian power. I mean, this is what this occasion is all about. Uh, but it's based on a historical lie. I mean, like the whole narrative of the Great Patriotic Wars, it's called, is 1941 to 45. And we all remember in Ireland and in Europe, 1939 to 45. And there's a reason why they don't mention those two years between 1939 and 41, because that's when the Soviet Union colluded with Nazi Germany to divide up Europe uh, between Stalin and Hitler. And indeed, the Soviet press at the time rejoiced when Britain was being bombed, when France was being attacked. And only because Hitler reneged on the deal and then attacked mm -hmm. the Soviet Union uh, did it become the great defense of victim Russia. But during those two years, Finland was attacked, Romania, the Baltic states, Poland. And the point is, is that this, is, this has always been uh, an occasion to instill patriotism, but also fear in the neighbours that Russia is still a major force and a major but player. But many in ordinary politics. Russians do celebrate this day, nonetheless. Like 27 million Soviets died in World War II. Yeah, but that wasn't an exclusively Russian war. I mean, this is one of the things that Volodymyr Zelensky brought out today. I mean, over six million Ukrainians died. Indeed, a higher proportion of Ukrainians died in the Second World War than Russians. A quarter of the Belarusian population died. And, and you know, I think he put it very well when he said, this isn't a war today between two armies. This is a, a war between two worldviews. Uh, and it's the same kind of battle that we had mm. during the Second World War. But uh, uh, the Nazis in this situation are not emanating from Ukraine. Um, on this one, um, Jim, attention was brought to Russia's support in Ireland. We saw that convoy at the weekend on the M6. And a rally that's been traditionally held at Phoenix Park um, was cancelled. Uh, there is a Russian community here who would traditionally mark this day, albeit this year it feels a little different. Listen, our criticism isn't of the Russian people. Our criticism is of Putin's regime. And it is very offensive to the Ukrainian people that he keeps invoking a war against Nazism. When in fact, if you're looking for a comparator with the Third Reich, it's in fact the regime of Vladimir Putin. He's the strong per the country that has invaded weaker neighbours. He's the person who has violated international law. He's the person in his regime have violated and committed war crimes. So he's entitled, to, and Russian people are entitled, to commemorate their victory in the Second World War. But what they can't do is distort history. And that's what Putin was trying to do today by condemning the West and condemning Ukraine as being the representatives of Nazism. We know that's not correct. Unfortunately, most people in Russia won't know it because of the fact that he controls the media and deprives them of access to objective facts. Um, on this one, McCarthy, as a former MEP, do you think, uh, what do you think Europe's part is to play in all of this? I mean, you know, talking about um, 75 days, 10 weeks into war. Um, Europe is helping to, to arm this war, as is the US, and engage in sanctions. 
how does all this come to an end? And could the EU be doing do more to assist in that? Well, I think we have to be very careful to not allow any narrative other than the primary and ultimate and sole responsibility for the conflict that's happening in Ukraine. It rests with Vladimir Putin and his regime. And so we can all have different views in terms of how the EU approaches international affairs. But in this instance, um, there is only one sole perpetrator of of war crimes. There is only one aggressor here, and it is is the Russian regime. Um, and you know, I think I agree with Jim on this. You know, Russian people or you know, people from the former Soviet bloc have every right to be incredibly proud of the role of the Red Army and the wider resistance to um, the uh, to the Nazi regime and their role in bringing that regime to a down uh, um, um, to um, um, to an end. But I think if anything, you know, that legacy is really, really sullied by it being connected with what is being perpetrated on the Ukrainian people today. Mm. Uh, Russian relations in Ireland, it's interesting, you know, this rally taking place at the same time, we're seeing Ukrainian flags, you know, right around the country, council supporting that move. I think everyone will see it in their neighbourhood. Um, but, you know, it's it's interesting, isn't it, the, the, where, where all of this comes down to within Ireland, the Russian ambassador still being in situ, mm-hmm. um, our attempts to help Ukrainian refugees in this situation. A balancing act has, has almost been played here. Absolutely. And you we're seeing from the government week in and week out, we've had, you know, numerous opposition and government TDs calling for the expulsion of the Russian ambassador. We heard it again last week after that very strange propaganda video from Russian state TV in which we nearly lost Donegal in some kind of nuclear attack. So, and we heard it last week, you know, further calls to expel the ambassador. The government do not seem to be moved by that whatsoever. They say they need to keep the diplomatic channels open. And the other thing... I've been thinking about just as we were talking is, you know, it must be incredibly awkward and uncomfortable for the Russian population in Ireland because we cannot assume that they support Putin and and what he's doing. We know in parts of Russia that this invasion is deeply unpopular as it is. We saw the protests in St. Petersburg and other places. So you'd have to um, assume that there are people within Ireland, Russian people who are totally against it as well. And as you say, it is a balancing act because the quarrel is not with the Russian people. It is with Putin's regime. Mm. It's a difficult one, isn't it, Jim? What to do um, with the Russian ambassador in situ? As I said, we're 10 weeks into this war now. We have, um, you know, Putin and his speech today not signify certainly no victory, but no end in sight to what's happening. Um, and yet, there, despite all the calls for the Russian ambassador to be expelled, that's not going to happen or likely to happen, yeah, it, is it? It, it? it is a difficult issue, and it's a difficult issue for government. And like I and very many other members of the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party called a number of weeks ago for the Russian ambassador to be expelled. I was astonished by the video that was produced last week on Russian state television, which showed not just Donegal being obliterated, Aoife, but they had a Poseidon nuclear missile hitting the west coast of Ireland into the Atlantic Ocean and submerging Ireland and Britain. And of course, the extraordinary thing about it, it was referred to as the British Isles, were completely irrelevant to them. So like, I think we need to have a recognition, a sense of self-awareness as to the role we're playing internationally. We're playing a strong role, but I suppose from my own point of view, I wonder why it is that a proud, sovereign country such as Ireland would want to retain diplomatic relations with such an aggressive regime as Putin's. But listen, that's probably so, easier for me as a backbench TD to say that. So you would be of, among the TDs yeah, to well, say from the, point of, like, the government's point, in fairness, the, the argument that we made by Foreign Affairs and by Simon Coveney is this, and we should keep diplomatic relations open with Moscow. 
Moscow. And there's an argument to be made in that as well. But like, yeah. I do think we need to recognise that what Russia is doing at present, what Putin's regime is doing, is beyond the pale of normal international relations. Uh, we have a seat, of course, at the UN Security Council, um, um, small but powerful. Should we be doing more in that regard? Do we have a little more influence in, in this? We do at the United Nations for a two-year period, um, but it has to be said that this war has exposed the imperfections of the United Nations and the, 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 the architecture. It's not able to to police. Uh, it's not able to impose its will. And there's been a lot of statements of concern by the UN General Secretary. But Russia has a, per a veto power. It's a, it's a permanent member of the Security Council. And as long as that's the case, it's going to be very difficult to use the UN as a mechanism to bring Russia to account. So, Donica, you know, talking about, and it's constantly talked about, the, the, the off-ramp for Putin here, maybe an ability for him to declare some sort of victory to his people and for this war to end. But where does it all go from here? Any hints... Um, in that speech today about where this is all heading. He talked a lot about Donbass, as you say, um, but Putin really holds all the cards here. Well, it, it, it is his war. It was at his initiative. Uh, from the very first day, the Ukrainians were looking for a ceasefire. Uh, even as recently as Easter, Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, asked for a four-day ceasefire over what is a period that unites Ukrainian and Russians. And Vladimir Putin would have none of it. He's made it clear that until he achieves these military objectives, he's not interested in diplomacy. He's not interested in talks. The only question, therefore, is at what point will his appetite be satisfied? Um, but he's had very modest advances since focusing on Donbass. And that was the only mildly positive takeaway from this speech today, which was otherwise very chilling, was that there was this focus exclusively on Donbass and therefore it may suggest that he's his objectives are limited. But he's always kept us guessing from the very first moment when his yeah, troops were surrounding Ukraine. Isn't it interesting, though, like wars always end with negotiations, don't they, Mark Carthy? I mean, uh, that's ultimately realpolitik. That's how they end. Well, to, at, at some point or another, Emmanuel Macron made some very interesting um, analogies with the end of the First World War um, um, to, today, um, which would create a, um, a sense that perhaps there's a view um, at a, a wider level that this is going to, you know, there's going to be a, a military victory on one side or a, another. But without that outright military victory and you know I'm somebody who's not an expert in these things but I don't see that happening um, in this scenario then of course it's people coming around the table and uh, and that I think is when countries like Ireland mm. can play a really strong role in, term, in terms of the international framework and uh, you know in, in the first instance being an advocate for peace and an end to the war but mm. then in terms of how we actually treat countries that invade their neighbours um, at a whim um, in, in, in the post scenario. So um, I do think that as a neutral country and historically neutral country, we can play a really positive role in that regard. Um, with all of this happening, of course, humanitarian efforts continue. If on the domestic front, this €400 Euro per month that was being offered mm -hmm. to families to house Ukrainian refugees, that hasn't been rolled out yet. There's a delay to it. Why is that? Yeah, well, I was briefed last week that it was coming next week and I've been briefed this week that it's coming next week as well. There are ongoing talks between a number of departments, so the Department of Children, Social, Social Protection and Public Expenditure. There's a lot of things that they still need ironed out. Now, they do say that they are you know, determined to pay this €400 euro, and from what I understand, it will be €400 euro no matter how many people that you take in. So if you take in one person or you take in an entire family, it's a, it's a one €400 euro payment. But we're still a week away now. We were a week away a week ago, but we're still a week away now. So it's not coming to Cabinet this week either. But all the same, we keep hearing that 
families and, and people, uh, homeowners who've come forward and said, we will take a family into mm -hmm. our homes, haven't been contacted. Um, and yet we're hearing that the numbers of people who are coming in seeking refuge are increasing by the day. Yeah, so the government have said, you know, we're trying, they're doing all these these plans. They've got the defence forces now who are vetting people and doing all these calls along with the Red Cross. It's just not quick enough. Um, the government weren't prepared um, and haven't been, and it has been slow, you know, on the uptake. So I think this could go on for like another couple of weeks at least until they get under the rhythm of thing because as you say there are people arriving every day and we know that we are already out of accommodation yeah and as we just to say that as we come into the summer months hotels need to reopen to tourists so we are going to be under more time pressure now yeah. to get Ukrainian people into better accommodation. The government's really on the back foot with this, isn't it, Jim? Well, in fairness, the response of the government, and more importantly, the Irish people, has been very generous to date. 28,000 Ukrainian people have come into the country, I think, to date, which is an extraordinary amount when you consider the numbers that have gone into uh, the United Kingdom. Listen, as Aoife said, the government is paying catch-up, but like, this wasn't expected. It's what about that payment to families, though? Like that, that will happen, but listen, there's a bureaucracy that needs to be put in place, and it will happen, I hope, within the next two weeks. But I think we need to recognise is that things like this take time to be put in place. And the government has, you know, been very generous in stating that people will get 400 euro in terms of people who are staying with them from Ukraine. The Irish people have been very generous. But I, I think we also need to be honest with the people. This is going to become increasingly more difficult as appropriate accommodation runs out. And we need to be honest with the Irish people about that. Um, do you accept that, that bureaucracy needs to come into play in all of this and it takes time to, to get the, the system right for this one, McCarthy? Well, to be fair, this is a huge challenge that under any circumstances would be difficult for any government because you're talking about huge numbers of people who are coming in, not just in need of shelter, but also all the ancillary things like education, like access to healthcare and all of that. I have to say it doesn't help that this is on top of an existing housing crisis. So that makes things even worse. And again, this government have a record of you know, squandering goodwill of people, quite frankly, and you know, following up with you know, mismanagement. There needs to be a very clear set of who's in charge and the structures that are in place. That hasn't been seen to, to date. So I think the goodwill is there, absolutely. I think the best intentions are there by government, but we haven't just seen the structures that can actually roll this out in a way in which um, resolves the issues of um, those Ukrainians who are coming here in need of support, which we all agree they should get. But at the same time, we have to be very careful that we don't actually put them into conflict with people who have been facing failures of that same government um, for yeah, a number of years. That, Those people that, who are suffering from the rental and home uh, housing crisis, the deficiencies in our health services, and unfortunately, the list could go on. Yeah, that's the challenge with all know, of this, Jim, isn't that, it? That is a challenge, but it's a challenge in every European country which is taking in refugees. Like The numbers that are coming in are very significant and it looks like they will increase quite significantly. But it's important that what we don't do is we try to say it's Ukrainians on one hand or Irish people on the other. Like We need to well, recognise... No, just for example, on the housing crisis, yeah. if you want to come in on that and, and, and yeah, the narrative but, emerging from Dara O'Brien. Yeah, it was just last week that the housing minister, O'Brien, did allude to the fact that they were under pressure because there was Ukrainian people who coming in who are not economic migrants who are, say, looking for work, but they're refugees who need accommodation. And I think it was made very clear to him in the immediate aftermath that we had a housing crisis long before Vladimir Putin set his sights on Ukraine. And I don't think anyone thinks that we should be putting Ukrainian people who need shelter and accommodation to Irish people who've been on housing lists for years and years. I thought it was a very negative comment to make, and I think we're a bit better than that, to be honest.
Okay, well, my panel will be here. We're going to stay uh, stay with us as we take a look a little closer to home. We're going to look at the fallout from Sinn Féin's hugely symbolic election win in Northern Ireland. After a dramatic weekend in the north, it was back to Stormont to sort out where the Northern Ireland Assembly goes from here. Sinn Féin MLAs were there celebrating the party's symbolic victory, but there's no guarantee that Michelle O'Neill will get to take up the position of First Minister. Take a look at these two clips and see how far away Sinn Féin and the DUP are. The people have spoken, and they've spoken very clearly in this election. The message is one of hope. It's also one of optimism for the future where political leaders work together and they make politics work. That's my commitment as a political leader and as an incoming First Minister. We will not be nominating ministers to the executive. And that is our position. We look uh, to what the government are now going to say, but more fundamentally important to what the government are now going to do. Lee for more, Jim O'Callaghan, Matt Carthy and Donico Bacon are still here with me. And I'm joined from Belfast by Sam McBride, Northern Ireland editor of the Belfast Telegraph on Sunday Independent. Um, to you first on this, Aoife, um, a victory for Sinn Féin. What's your sense of how things have shifted in the North and the significance of this election result that puts Sinn Féin historically on top? Yeah, it is really, really significant. It's a historic sea change. I think, you know, what we've seen is um, Sinn Féin didn't gain any seats, but they have very much consolidated the seats that they have. They have a good voter base and they ran a very effective campaign. I think the bigger sea change that we've seen is the freefall of unionism in the DUP. We are seeing people who would have traditionally been DUP voters slide away from that party and that's why we saw the rise in the Alliance Party. I think, you know, we're seeing and this is the youngest assembly that we've ever elected. It's also the most woman we've ever elected, which I think is a great thing. But what we're seeing is that notion of unionism and all that, the, these young people who would have traditionally been uh, DUP voters have moved away from that. And, you know, the DUP tried to make this uh, an election and a campaign about the protocol. And it was very clear from all um, the leaders' debates and the debates during the election, and even from the UUP, you know, Doug Beattie saying, when they came to the doors, it was not the protocol people wanted to mm. talk about. There is a cost of loving crisis. The health service in the North is on its knees. There is three million pounds waiting in a bank account for Northern Ireland to be spent, which cannot be spent without an executive. Those are the things that the people in Northern Ireland want sorted out. Uh, you know, we heard there from Michelle O'Neill, uh, Matt Carthy, she is ready to form an executive immediately, but she has a major task ahead. The Secretary of State, Brandon Lewis, will now be meeting um, with all parties in this, but it's, it's very uncertain as to where it'll go. Well, and in real terms, according to Geoffrey Donaldson, um, Michelle O'Neill has no task at all because what he is demanding in order to restore the executive is outside of the control of the executive. It's outside of the control of the entire island of Ireland and arguably outside of the control of even the British and Irish governments together because it's down to a negotiation between um, Britain and, uh, and the European Union. Now, of course, there's a sense and a fear that the protocol is a guise that this is about 
unionism not being willing to work alongside a nationalist for, uh, first minister and only time will tell whether there's a basis in that. Do you think that is the that. issue? I would have my suspicions. I have to be um, quite honest and frank about it because everybody knows, you know, the executive, even if the entire um, 90 member... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Uh, members of the Assembly agreed with the DUP's position on the um, protocol. And by the way, a majority, I mean, a large majority, don't. But even if they did, they wouldn't be able to change it okay. unilaterally. Well, let's go to Sam McBride on that. On, on the DUP's stance on this, Sam, will they accept, are they accepting the outcome of this election? And are they going to contend with second place here? It's fairly extraordinary that you even have to ask that question. And yet the reason that you're asking that question is because Jeffrey Donaldson did not clarify this during the campaign. He quite deliberately made this a question um, which was in people's minds. That was disastrous for his party. It drove voters to Sinn Féin. It, um, it really undermined the, the basic principles of any democratic outcome that you have to accept it, whether you win or whether you lose. But we've, we've had some more clarity from the DUP on that since the result. One of their ministers has said today quite clearly that yes, they will serve with Michelle O'Neill as first minister. So that seems to be off the table. That's a fairly easy thing to take off the table because it's purely symbolic. What Sinn Féin has achieved here is extraordinary. It's hugely significant in, in really symbolic terms, as has been said by Aoife there. But it really is about rubbing the deputy out in front of the title that, that was there for Michelle O'Neill. It's, it's purely symbolic. It doesn't give her any extra powers. That's the easy thing for the DUP to accept. The more difficult thing is the protocol. And as Matt Carthy says, that's outside the control of anybody in Northern Ireland. So that's not looking like we're going to have a government for a considerable period. Yeah. I mean, does this really mean weeks of a stalemate here? You know, what can these negotiations or talks um, with the, the, the British Secretary of State, Brandon Lewis, meeting the parties, will that do any good at all? It's just window dressing? 
I don't think there's any prospect of that going anywhere. I think there is a temptation that some people in the DUP feel uh, about leaving this for several months. And if the protocol stays as it is, if the Irish Sea border stays as it is, really going back to the electorate and seeing if actually unionists will rally behind them. That's a massively risky strategy. But one significant element of this is that while, as Aoife said, there are unionist voters who have left unionism, who have gone to alliance, who have gone to the centrist parties, um, that, that has also happened from nationalist parties. They've lost voters to the centre ground. But there was a big, big shift here, a more significant shift within unionism uh, to the hardline fringe of Jim Allister, to the most anti-protocol party that there is. He got 66,000 votes. It didn't get him any extra seats in the Assembly. But he is now a significant force on the right of unionism. Unionism is, is both shrinking in this election, but it's also hardening its position. And that makes it hard for Sir Geoffrey Donaldson to compromise, even if that's what he wanted to do. Um, on this one, Jim, the whole formation of the North, uh, you say, was designed to stay under unionist control. And this has changed everything. Yet we are at stalemate once again. Yeah, I think it is a historic event and I think we need to recognise that. The fact that a nationalist party is the largest party in Northern Ireland is something that James Craig would never envisage when he set up Northern Ireland in 1922. So, you know, I congratulate Michelle O'Neill and her colleagues. It's a significant achievement. It's also historic because of the performance of the Alliance Party. And the Alliance Party went from eight seats to 17 seats. And what it shows also, something that James Craig or even Michael Collins at the time wouldn't have envisaged, is that many people in Northern Ireland no, no longer view themselves as orange or green. And that is growing. And I think that's a good thing that that is growing. But listen, unfortunately, there's a touch of Groundhog Day here. We've had three assembly elections over the past six years. And during those six years, we've only had an executive sitting for two years and eight months. So like, we cannot allow this to happen again. The people of Northern Ireland went out last Friday. They voted. They did their part of the bargain. And they're entitled to get an executive as a result of the votes they cast. The same in any jurisdiction. If we had an election here and people didn't like the result and we didn't try to form a government, we'd be criticised. So I think really, uh, Geoffrey Donaldson and the DUP need to recognise that they're playing a dangerous game by placing their trust in Boris Johnson. They tried that already and he let them down. The likelihood is he's going to let them down again. And the problem with this, this issue is in British politics, Brexit is not so much an event as a state of mind. And it seems to suit members of the British Tory party to keep it as a live issue on the agenda, fights with the EU. And that's Eva, not serving the interests of Ireland. Eva, how does this dangerous game then potentially play out? I cannot overstate enough how deeply unpopular the last storm and stalemate was. The people on the doors of Northern Ireland were absolutely furious. I cannot see how it's going to get any better when there is a cost of living crisis and they see MLAs who are not at work but getting paid their very good wage when they're not going to work. Jeffrey Donaldson is playing a very risky game here and if it does go the 24 weeks and we have another election, the DUP will pay the price at the doors even worse than they did on Friday because the people of Northern Ireland really, really want Stormont back together. Um, you know, all of this, of course, brings up a shift in things, as, as Jim was alluding to there, Donica, that things aren't as straightforward as orange and green when you see the rise of Alliance and other parties who would not take that stance um, traditionally. It has changed things in that regard, that there are other issues at play here. And as Aoife said, people, you know, fed up at this point of, of no agreement being reached on, on sharing power. Oh, absolutely. And there's a clear majority now in the Assembly who are in favour of sharing power and also of the protocol. That has to be stressed. It's the DUP, really, who are, are the obstacle here. And 
they're, they're, they're misreading as well the Good Friday Agreement, I think, deliberately in, in assuming that, you know, DUP consent is needed for everything. Uh, you know, consent is, is, is when it comes to constitutional change. In terms of the blocks, I mean, there's been a consolidation behind Sinn Féin for the, the, the you might say, the nationalist bloc. You know, the DUP is still the, the, the key uh, party for unionism and the alliance, of course, is there for the centre ground. And it's more or less 40-40-20. What's interesting post-Brexit, because, I mean, you know, the international media, of course, were focusing on what does this mean for the future of Ireland and a border poll and unity and all of that. What's interesting is, is that ultimately that 20%, which is growing, will be the determining factor on the constitutional future uh, of, of Northern Ireland and of Ireland. Ireland. It, arguably, those who are least concerned about constitutional issues are the ones who are going to determine the constitutional future, not the orange or the green. Yeah. The uh, positive of that is that all that's standing between us and a united Ireland is our ability to convince those people and mm. others that their interests lie, the interests in terms of themselves, their families, yeah. and their communities lies in actually working together across the island of Ireland. Because Aoife talks about the health services in the north, and she's right, and we also have a deficient health service um, down here. But when you look at both and take a step back, you recognise that we're too small of a country actually to have two All different right. health so services. So on that, and um, we know that Mary Lou Macdonald said she envisages a, a border poll um, or discussion around a referendum on reunification um, within the next five years. Is that realistic? Is that something you're aiming for? Yeah, but I think it's very important just to clarify what we have been calling for for the past number of years, and that's for actually to have a planned approach to all of this and actually a coordinated approach. So, you know, I've often said I have a very strong and probably set view of what I think a united Ireland should look like. But it shouldn't be up to me on my own. It shouldn't be up to even to Sinn Féin, no matter how large we are. This okay, has so to be who's much involved? bigger. So I think it who's needs, involved in I think, that? And we've said plan. this, the Irish government has a, a leadership role to play. The, you know, the Irish government has the, the um, resources, it has the, the, the bodies, it has the authority to actually put in place um, the bringing together in the first instance of all those who advocate and would like to see a united Ireland and then to um, encompass all others who want to be part of the conversation. We have suggested a citizens' assembly is a, would be a good way to actually initiate that di dialogue. But we don't, and who's we're on not that assembly? You know, well, it'll be a citizens' assembly for? made up of people across the island of Ireland. Okay. Citizens as opposed to um, and politicians. At the same time, I do think there's an onus on every government department, in essence, should be looking at developing... What about the shared island the unit? Uh, and that has a part to play as well, absolutely. Um, what we're saying is that... Is that not that the planning? Is this not no, the sort I mean, of thing you're talking the, the, about? The shared island unit is doing some good work in terms of um, um, advancing infrastructural developments. It's also doing good works in terms of having broad dialogues. Um, but what I think needs to happen in relation to Irish unity needs to be much more structured than that. And actually planning and envisaging. And Jim? also, just to say finally, um, the Irish government has, um, according to our own constitution, the aspiration of, um, of achieving a united Ireland. So the Irish government needs to become an advocate as opposed to a bystander in this so debate. Do you think the government aren't vocal enough about that? It's not about being yeah, vocal. Yeah, Leo coming out talking like he was on the same page as, as Mary Lou Macdonald. Um, we, 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 we have, we, look, there are people in government that want to see United Ireland. But by their own admission, they don't want to do anything about it today. I just don't think that that's a feasible position. Not doing anything about it, Jim. I disagree with that. Can I just say, I don't think the election result last Friday from Northern Ireland, that the issue of reunification was the central or main issue in it. I, I think the main issues were the ones that were discussed in the debates, cost of living, health service, but housing people not in Northern know when Ireland. they're voting for Sinn Féin that that's what they were voting for? I know. Listen, politics in Northern Ireland is different to down here. It is quite tribal in Northern Ireland. And I say that with the greatest respect yeah, to Aoife, but it is 
is different in terms of the tribal votes because when it comes to people who are on the extremes, they will vote irrespective of the policy issues. We've that just is, had a conversation about how the green and the orange is not. Know, that's a conversation about 15 years ago. I know, but that is changing in the middle and hopefully that change will continue to take place. But listen, in terms of the shared island unit, a lot of good work has been done in the shared island unit. My own view, however, is that we've done something unusual on the Good Friday Agreement. We entered into an arrangement whereby we said if the people of another jurisdiction decide they want to reunify with us, well then we will facilitate it and we will vote on that. So that's what I think we need to prepare as to how we would respond to reunification because it is something that is outside the control of the people living in the Republic. Uh, Sam, just to ask you on this because it's obviously come up for discussion now with Sinn Féin getting the majority of that vote and indeed Mary Lou Macdonald pointing um, to this potentially happening within the next five years. How unionists feel about all of that? Well, there, there is a deep unease among unionists almost perpetually. They are, they are people who feel that they are clearly a fact that they are, they are factually a minority on the island. They feel under siege. They, they feel particularly under siege because their leaders are so inept right now. But I think that there is a very interesting aspect to this that the union has survived, if you like, despite Brexit, despite the um, really dreadful efforts of unionism's leaders to try to defend it. And um, it has, it has been able to survive despite those people, not because of those people. And actually, if you look at this from a different perspective, I think Sinn Féin ought to be slightly concerned. They're brilliant at winning elections. They had an extraordinary result last week. They're not very good at persuading people about Irish unity. They've hardly moved the dial since Brexit on that issue in Northern Ireland. And so therefore, if you look at the reasons why we don't have a united Ireland right now, it's not because of lots of the things that people talk about, about planning or whatever it might be. It's because most people in Northern Ireland do not want that to happen. And are Sinn Féin persuading those people right now? No, those people are going to the centre ground parties who basically don't care about this. They say, whatever happens in the future, it happens. But right now, we want to live our lives. That's where the real growth is in Northern Ireland politics right now. Matt, you're not convincing anyone. Well, I think we have always said, you know, in the first instance, a United Ireland won't be brought about without Sinn Féin. I believe that passionately, but I also believe it won't be brought about by us on our own. We don't want this to be about a, a party political project. This is a big national project that we, all the people of Ireland, have to be part of, including those who are diametrically opposed to the concept, including those people. And I think it's not fair to say that those people who vote Alliance or Greens or other parties don't care about this issue. What they want to be persuaded on is whether or not their lives will be better in a united Ireland than it currently is. I think if we can do that, then absolutely, um, they're uh, they're up up uh, they're part of the uh, of the advocates for Irish unity. But we all have to be part of the persuasion. And if anybody just thinks, as the Taoiseach did this morning, I think you know far too smugly for my liking, it suggests that this was, you know, a Sinn Féin project and, you know, and therefore he didn't want to be part of it. He absolutely does. And it isn't just about recognising that, you know, the North is a different jurisdiction. It's also about recognising that partition has been an absolute disaster. No matter what basis you look at it, it has failed all of the people of this island. It has... It prevented us from reaching our maximum potential. So the undoing of it can only be a good thing. Donica, do you think this is a question, this is a referendum that will be put before the public within five years? I think within five years might be uh, beyond the ambitions even of Sinn Féin. I think, I, but I think it, there's a feeling that it's inevitable. And, and I think that the feeling is, is that we're talking more like a decade 
Um, certainly the fact that Sinn Féin are the largest party in Northern Ireland, albeit a minority within Northern Ireland, and the fact that Sinn Féin, all opinion polls suggest down here, are a major- or not a majority, but the largest party, does create a certain momentum. Uh, and, and I think that it is, it is certainly a debating point. It is, it is being discussed. And, and certainly, you know, I think the, the common point that everybody agrees on is that when that referendum is held, that it, it doesn't repeat the mistakes of Brexit, that it's, it's clearly thought out, that it's planned for, that no, people know what they're voting for. And, and, you know, that's what happened in Scotland. Scotland, I remember they created a, a, a several hundred page document looking at every single aspect. And indeed, at that time in 2014, people voted against. But the thing is, is that people knew what they were voting on, completely the opposite of Brexit. And I think that's the model. OK, we'll leave it there. My thanks to Donico back on. And uh, Sam McBride, Aoife, Jim and Matt will be staying with me as we look at a new fare drop for those using public transport. Stay with us. Welcome back. Fares and public transport have been cut as part of the government's plans to tackle the cost of living. It's the first time that fares have been cut nationally since 1947, with many fares dropping by around 20%. Aoife Moore, Jim O'Callaghan and McCarthy are still with me, and I'm joined by Shauna Barrows, reporter at the Irish Times. Uh, Shauna, you've written about this uh, fare discount today. Uh, who benefits most from it? There are two changes that have begun to take effect from today. So first of all, you have the national 20% reduction. So that was actually implemented outside of Dublin in April, April 11th, but it's come into effect for the greater Dublin area today. But then outside of that, you also actually have a 50% reduction for students and adults under 24. So they um, are going to have a massive uh, reduction in cost for public transport. So I think they're kind of the biggest winner from today. But that was a measure announced in the budget that's kind of separate to the cost of living crisis. It's kind of just been coincidental and handy that it has kind of begun now. But the, the measure, the 20% reduction is specific to the rising costs that we're all kind of facing. Yeah, because Eamon Ryan has said that this is unprecedented and really quite radical. Um, would you agree with him, Matt Carthy? Well, I welcome any reduction in anybody's daily costs and I welcome the fact that for many people they'll see a reduction in their public transport, albeit that the caveat that the government has said it's only in place until the end of the year. I have to say, though, for most of my constituencies, they're looking on bewildering, bewildered, wondering what's public transport because um, if you take the border region, for example, and Cavan Monaghan as, as an example within that, there's no rail network. Um, we have a very limited um, public bus um, capacity, most of which is provided by private operators who don't benefit from either of yeah. the two schemes that um, Shauna has talked about. So even for those people who do make the effort to travel by public transport in lots of regions right across the country, they'll get no benefit um, whatsoever. And in my own constituency, um, the only mode of transport, which is our roads, um, Eamon Ryan has removed funding from um, um, a major road infrastructure to the northwest um, and put it into, we're told, active travel. So I don't know whether he expects people from um, Derry to cycle or walk um, to Dublin, but he should explain perhaps. There's already political heat on this, isn't it, Aoife? Like, as they announce one thing and this you know, 20% cut, 50% cut for students, um, the private operators are out saying, you know what, if you're going to get a, a bus, which many people have to do mm-hmm. privately, um, you, you don't get the discount. This is the thing as well about, you know, all our climate plans and we need to face the climate emergency. Everyone is, you know, in favour of more people using public transport. That's what we need people to do. But we need to give people options. Like, as Matt 
say it, there are vast swathes of the country that don't have effective public transport for them to use. So this is all well and good saying to them, oh, don't be using the car as much and, you know, try and get on the bike. You can't tell somebody in northwest Donegal to get on the bike to go to school or work and if there's no bus, this is the thing I am really, like, I think there is good intentions behind this, but without actually prepping and planning and putting in more buses and public transport or whatever else in rural constituencies, which most of Ireland does, then we're not going to see any great changes. Isn't that the big issue, Jim, that while this is all well and good and it will definitely serve people well in urban areas, for those outside of those um, cities in Ireland and in smaller towns, it won't have any impact at all. We're talking about a cost of living crisis and they're saying, I still have to get into my car and we know that petrol and diesel is costing us an awful well, lot more to, these days. To listen to Matt and Aoife, you'd think fares had gone up today, had been increased by the government. In fairness, the government sometimes deserves a bit of credit and you know it's not usual for the media or for journalists. No, we are. Or for we, no, there, there certainly is credit to, to the discount that's yeah, afforded to many. Significant but, discounts but, that were brought in first time. But on since that issue, that it's, it's not accessible to everyone. Well, it's not accessible to everyone, but it's a start. Like what we're trying to do here is target a very serious cost of living crisis. It's difficult to cope with that. Already two billion in measures have been introduced by the government. There's been the 200 euro rebate. There's been the fuel allowance scheme. We're out in Europe trying to get a reduction in that. So what can't happen is that there's going to be measures every week. But I think the reduction in public transport is significant in the cost. It's going to help students. It's going to help people in the cities. And you're right, that doesn't mean that the government shouldn't try now further to look beyond the cities and to look into the regions to ensure that there can be reduced prices there as well. But, but like some, cred some credit should be know, given, Matt. Absolutely, and I've welcomed the fact that public um, transport fares are being reduced, but you can't put that then in the context of a cost of living um, crisis and then not acknowledge that for many people not only are they not getting the benefit of this, but their costs have actually soared as a result of rising petrol and diesel um, and which are now the cost of, uh, or beyond the yeah. cost of the last time government did make a minimum reduction on excise, so more needs to be done in that regard if people have no other choice. And um, omitting uh, private bus companies would seem like an error from government. Is it something that they plan that we may see a change around this, that there are growing calls for the operators themselves and then for those who have to use um, those buses because they've no other choice to, to be able to avail of a discount? I think voices are quite loud on this argument, even from speaking to commuters today. Um, I suppose cost is only one barrier. Um, convenience and reliability of public transport is another issue altogether. And this reduction in fares isn't going to tackle that. So if you're living in Malahide and you want to get into Dunleary, that, that requires two different modes of transport and it could take you two hours, whereas if you're driving, that could take you 25 minutes. So there's, there's kind of several levels here of unhappiness and... He's right, we, we should acknowledge that this is a win, particularly for those who are immediately hopping on one mode of transport to another and they're at their destination. But there is a lot of nuance here and a lot of gaps that haven't yet been filled with this measure. I suppose it's a temporary measure as well that you're saying. It's just in place until the end of the year. But there's likely to be an awful lot of pressure for that not to change come the end of the year, I imagine, as well. Yeah, so the 50% reduction for students that and uh, adults age 24, that's a permanent change. But the 20% reduction, yes, that's until the end of the year. And it's very difficult to kind of roll back on that. You can only imagine the public outroar that's going to occur when that 
if that does happen. Well, one of the interesting things that we look at as well is the number of people who are using public transport. If the reduction in fees results in more people, considerably more people using it, well, I think that's going to be a, an additional piece of useful information for government. And maybe by even reducing fares, we can get in more money. So if we can attract more people to use public transport, it might necessarily so mean... So you've set a challenge now. I think so, yeah. <laughs> but remember, one of I mean, Eamon great does it have to take that, that though, that in order to, to resource the transport system a bit better and to, to, to improve the network it's around the, first the country. Time since 1947, the fares have gone yeah, down. We talking, the government has you know, done we were, well. We in were talking to that. about this during the break, and the, the fact that there's no train link um, going to the northwest. Aoife was saying here she didn't get in a train until she was 18. I, I heard her say <laughs> that. Nobody bought me a train today. That. For the, I hope you've been on the train since then. I have then, been on the train now, you're just not on the dairy. But listen, of course, transport in Ireland needs to improve, and we're all committed to doing that. And we're trying to increase public transport. In fairness, Damon Ryan, that's what his mandate appears to be in oh, the Department of Transport. He's trying to improve public transport. But like, we need to recognise that steps will be taken by government, but they're only going to be taken slowly. In fairness, we can't resolve everything in immediate time. But we can't then penalise those people who have no choice. So one of the things that is the stated um, um, policy of government is to reduce car journeys. If we want to do that, we have to have alternatives. One simple thing government could do, people may not know this, there are thousands of car journeys being made every single morning and afternoon of parents having to drive... Carpooling? Are you talking carpooling? No, but the cars are... Parents have to drive their children to schools. In some instances, a school bus passes their door, but because of the bureaucracy that's in place, they're not able to qualify for um, access to that bus. All right, there we have to leave it. My thanks to the panel tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.